0: Hey there, welcome to the King and Culture Podcast. We have a special episode for you today. This is a recording from the question and answer night that we did related to the book of Revelation. We did this on November 9th, uh, 2023. It was a great night. It was a, a night where people had submitted some questions in advance, and so uh, we started the night talking about that, and then we took questions live from the folks in the room. Uh, we've tried to cut out, for the sake of just your listening enjoyment, tried to cut out uh, hearing the dead space where they were asking questions and uh, we tried to repeat the questions back so that uh, anyone listening to this would have the opportunity to know what they were. So um, it's a long episode that, uh, you know, a lot of it is just really interacting with those questions, talking about the book of Revelation. We talk a lot in there, uh, questions we got related to rapture, related to Israel, uh, especially related to current events as it you know, unfolding in Israel right now. Uh, We had a really fun, interesting question about aliens. Uh, It was just a good time. So uh, without further ado, here is the recording from that session. All right, so uh, one question uh, that we got relates to this idea of, you know, this thing we keep saying, these revelation reminders we say all the time. One of them is, uh, that Revelation was written f- uh, not to us, but for us. And, um, you know, someone asked, this question has to do with, uh, quote, it can't mean for us today what it didn't mean for them then. If we seek to practically apply other portions of Scripture that were written to specific groups of people within specific cultural contexts, why shouldn't we also do the same with Revelation? So uh, is this, you know, written for us but not to us? Is that, are we just saying that about Revelation, or are we actually saying that about everything that we read
1: yeah, that's going to be true for the whole scriptures, right? So when we say it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them, uh, what we're meaning by that is when Revelation talks about uh, like there are locusts, we can't import uh, Apache helicopters into that understanding of locusts. Uh, what what it means to them is probably a disgusting creature with power that's scary that I want nothing to do with. That's what they probably experienced in the first century. And therefore us too, we should try to also feel disgusted like they feel disgusted by the image of locusts. So just like when Paul writes to uh, the church at Rome, uh, take every thought captive, you know, like that, what that meant to them was they should take every thought captive. Therefore, what it means to us is take every thought captive. It's just trying to remind ourselves that Paul is writing to a real people, a real place, uh, probably with a mind of recognizing this will go broader and and be extended beyond, just like when he writes the Church of Rome. Same with John. John's writing Revelation to these churches in the first century, probably with an understanding that it will go beyond that, Um, But the first hearers should be our first lens of interpretation. And that's true for the whole of the scriptures. We don't want to try to import current events into stuff that first century people had no idea about. So that's not unique to Revelation. I just think we're uniquely tempted to um, egocentrically import our current events into Revelation, probably more so than
0: we are with other books. Yeah, there's kind of a sense, I think, that um, when it comes to Revelation— Like, we imagine the people who got the letter to the Romans understood it. We imagine that the people who got the letter to the Galatians understood it. I think sometimes people read Revelation as though the people who got the book of Revelation were like, we had no idea what this means. And uh, that's just not, like, we don't think about that about all the other scripture. Why would we think that about that? And so if we have a wildly different understanding than they had, well, we wouldn't read any other book like that. So even though we don't say it all the time, I think we are making the point that we want to always have, which is we're always kind of listening in. We're always eavesdropping on the conversation that's happening. And you're always, therefore, having to do the like connective tissue and in interpretation to go, okay, what did this mean to them? How did they understand this? And what, is it, what does it mean now? I'm curious. The follow-up question I have about that, Seth, is like there's plenty of places where like, I think about Isaiah – you know all these prophecies about the suffering servant that uh presumably the nation of Israel 700 BC did not understand right it was fulfilled far better and even different perhaps than they would have understood it and and so what would we say about it can't mean for us what it didn't mean to them if they if i mean they didn't or how how would you think about that
1: yeah i think it's important for us when we're reading old testament prophecies to look in the First Corinthians text when Paul talks about how all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And so the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is always going to be culminating in Jesus. And so especially when it comes to interpreting the scriptures as a canon or as a rule or as a measure, as a single unit, we want to recognize that when the canon is closed, uh, after the book of Revelation is, is written, there is an authoritative interpretive unit That we, this is like the reformation principle that scripture interprets scripture. And so um, the self-interpreting, self-authenticating unit of scripture as a whole is the way that I would refer, like, it can't mean to them what it didn't mean to us. So there's the first hears, but also when Christ is affirming the canon, when the apostles are affirming the canon and assembling the canon, there's this recognition that this as a body of information uh, interprets itself uh, unto us. And so... Thinking through Israel's prophecy versus John's prophecy, I think, is different because Israel's pointing forward to Christ. And now, having been on the far side of Christ's activity, there will, just like now, when Christ comes back after us and we're with him, we'll be able to see the canon of Scripture with a different lens and different eyes and interpret. Even now, Paul says we see veiled and we'll eventually see unveiled. And so even our attempts at interpreting Scripture are veiled, but they're not veiled because we don't have good enough hermeneutics. They're veiled because of where we are in world history, that when Jesus comes back will then be unveiled. And so I, I think that's what how to respond to that. Isaiah prophecy versus John's prophecy. Okay.
0: Great. Well, if you have more questions about that, we can come to it. So uh, one of the questions that we've gotten uh, interpersonally especially just is related to uh, rapture, right? Uh, if you've been listening along in this series, uh, I don't think we've talked about a rapture. Uh, I don't think we've talked, to, I, I can imagine some people who kind of have an understanding that, well, there's a rapture, right? Are waiting, and they're going, okay, we're getting near the end, must be coming. Uh, what What do you think about the rapture? When is it? What is it? Is it? Is it, Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I wrote uh, a paper about this in seminary called To Be or Not to Be Left Behind, which anybody can have if they want. We've linked to it and did a whole episode talking about it on the Cain Culture podcast. Uh, The shortest answer is uh, I think you don't want to be raptured. That's my personal theological position. I think that the rapture is describing um, what the Old Testament talks about about how when the judgment of God comes, the evil ones will be uprooted from the land of the living. That the actually, like the, when Jesus talks about there'll be two in a field and one is taken, it'll be like the days of Noah. That's the Olivet Discourse. Uh, It doesn't explicitly say which one will be taken. It just says two of them will be taken. It'll be like the days of Noah. And in my understanding, the days of Noah, God poured out his judgment on the earth and his righteous ones were preserved, and everybody else was wise, washed away and taken away and destroyed. And so, uh, when when the rapture happens, uh, even like the phrase "left behind" is used in the Greek Old Testament Septuagint to describe how Noah was left behind. And so, it's actually the rapturing away of the unrighteous into judgment, not the rapturing away of the righteous into the heavens. So that's my understanding of what the rapture is. Uh, that's different than the understanding I grew up in. That's different than the popular understanding in the Left Behind books. Um, in First Thessalonians 4, it says that we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds. Um, in the clouds is a pretty common phrase, meaning like uh, in, in the air, in the sky. Uh, the Old Testament talks about how uh, Yahweh rides on the clouds. It's a picture of his authority over the heavens and the earth. Um, and whenever a king would come to a city uh, the, the, there would be a greeting. They would go out to greet the king and welcome the king back into the city. Uh, so the, we're going to greet the king as he comes and welcome him back yeah, Let, let me city. just
0: Let me read this, this passage. So it's First Thessalonians 4, uh, 16 through 18. Apostle Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, there's a resurrection of those who are already dead, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words.
1: Yeah. So the caught up together, I understand that as saying, we greet Lord Jesus, and then we welcome him back to the city. Uh, Because the the general arc of the Old Testament in Zephaniah 3, it says, "Um, I'll remove from your midst the proudly exalted ones, and the no longer, and you shall no longer be haughty in the holy mountain. I will leave in your midst the people who are humble and lowly. That's Zephaniah 3. Psalm 52, 1. Um, why do you boast of evil, almighty oh, man? you love be more than good. God will snatch you up and tear you from your tent, and I'll uproot you from the land of the living. Similar in John 15, when the, I'm the true vine, um, but the vines that don't bear fruit, I'll gather up, and I'll uh, throw away like branches uh, to be gathered, thrown into the fire. So there's a gathering uh, and a throwing away.
0: So to be clear, are you saying there will literally be a moment when the unrighteous are whoosh, raptured away into judgment? Or are you using that kind of figurative language for all of the the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and all the wrath that we've been experiencing will be a kind of like destruction of the unrighteous?
1: Yeah, I don't know the exact means of the gathering. I don't or like whether it's like a whooshing away or a... Uh, lining up of, but there will be some form of gathering. I don't think it'll be necessarily like left behind and people like uh, secret disappear. And you're like, where'd all the wicked and depraved people go? (laughs) You know, I think, so I I think it'll be some, by some mechanism, God will gather together those and take them into judgment. Um, And it'll be the righteous unpreserved, preserved like, like Noah. So Uh, A lot of the questions about when the rapture happens, we got a couple of those questions. When do you think the rapture happens? Uh, And so some of the questions presume a different view of the rapture than I would hold, which is the view that we'd be raptured away um, like secretly or invisibly before the millennial reign happens. Uh, And so uh, the when the rapture happens doesn't really fit there. Uh, But that's a good question.
0: Yeah, part of what has made me question the idea of um, the kind of left-behind version of a rapture is it um, it splits up the second coming of Christ. Uh, it splits it up into a kind of, there's like a secret coming of Christ when everyone, whoosh, away they go. Um, but even the sense like, it, and again, our imaginations are so, so shaped by the guillotine movie. Uh, if you remember that one, I don't remember what that, what that one was called. And then the... Um, the left behind movies and the books and that sort of thing um, where the world is going, what happened? Wh- wh- how do we explain this? What took place? Um, and then at a later point, Jesus comes back and everyone knows, Oh, it's Jesus. The the problem I have with that is the verse I just read in, in first Thessalonians, where it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. It's all loud, 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 unmistakable. And so that makes me think I, I I have a hard time reconciling that with the idea that there's a wh- wait. What happened? Everyone just disappeared. Oh, that was the coming of Christ. But then there's still another one that is actually more like this, and so I—that's part of what has uh, given me pause about embracing the idea of a of a rapture. Believe me, I'd love there to be one. I mean, like I'm all, I'm all in. Like if we could get out of here before all this suffering and everything, that'd be dope. I'm in, I'm in. Count me in. I just don't think that's what the Bible teaches.
1: Yeah, the view of a secret rapture is actually really late, like maybe mid-1800s, uh, which is doesn't necessarily mean it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you that's usually not a good sign on uh, the church is wrong about something for 1850 years, uh, and then a new view. So that's one of my rules of thumb is that if I'm kind of torn on something, I go with like the latest view, uh, because it's all as being equal, closer to the original years is probably a good bet.
0: So let me ask a follow-up related to this. Um, a lot of times people that have asked me as it relates to the rapture will say, so are you saying that Christians then are going to go through all the same judgment and trouble and trials as everyone else, right? And some will even point to like Revelation 3.10. This is in the letter to uh, Philadelphia. Um because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth, right? They'll point to that and say, well, look, there it is. Like, we're going to be out. We're not going to have to face this same kind of trial and tribulation. Um, so in, in your understanding, in our understanding, would we be saying, hey, no, actually Christians will have to walk through, like, these seals are coming, and the trumpets are coming, and the bowls are coming, and yeah, they, so they, they, it's the same events and for non-Christians, they'll be experiences wrath and for Christians, they'll be experienced purification.
1: Yeah, so the tribulation or trial, uh, my understanding of it is there's just ever escalating situation going on. Just like we saw last past Sunday, there's the seals, it's a quarters destroyed, then you see the trumpets, it's a third, and then you see the bulls and it's total. Uh, I think part of what John's getting at is there's this ever-escalating pouring out of God's wrath. That's Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed and is being revealed. So even like the I'll keep you from wrath, I'll keep you from judgment, um, you could easily translate that keep you through or keep you with regards to, like that God's protecting us through it, not necessarily keeping us all the way out of it. Like we see that in Revelation Uh, Like the text I taught on on Sunday where the bowls are being poured out and God's people are there playing the harp and singing him praises. And it's like, so they're there, they're there differently, uh, but they're witnessing it and they're present in it. Uh, And it's, uh, I don't, the wrath of God's not being poured out on Christians because it's poured out in Christ on their behalf. Would
0: it be at all like, I mean, you were talking about the plagues. Would it all be like the, okay, The I mean, the angel of death came and passed over.
1: Yeah, I think it'll be told totally like that. The
0: but but then there's other plagues where it's like, I mean, some of them it specifically says you know there wasn't any hail and, you know that killed all the animals in Goshen. But, yeah. but then some of them everybody had to experience. I mean, everyone the the water turned to blood for everyone, Egyptian or Jew.
1: Yeah, like I think you taught on the horses, and one of the horses is like the horse of inflation and economic instability. I th- part of my view of that that horse is running wild like crazy. I think. Uh, the entire Western economic systems built on greed and speculation and accumulation and keeping up the Joneses and the idolatry of consumerism. And we're all experiencing the difficulty of inflation and our kids won't be able to buy houses cause it'll all be $7 million and interest will be 50%. And I feel like there's a little, there's an extent to which we're experiencing a foretaste of the wrath of God. And I'm going, you trust in money. Well, look where it's got you. Your money's worth nothing now. And so I think there's an aspect in which some of them that are just uh, just like Romans one talks about that we receive in ourselves the due penalty of our error, that there's an aspect of wrath which is getting what you deserve, that's just kind of cause effect. there's another aspect of wrath which is God's active presence of punishment, which is poured out in Christ, not on us, right? So I get really mad, I punch you in the face, I lose my job. Uh, true. You
0: know, like. <laughs> Just I, to be clear, I just, that is, that's I how just we do it
1: I just created suffering for myself, yeah and my sin, and like sometimes aspects of the wrath of God are experiencing the suffering that your sin creates. and so there's parts of that that we're always going to be experiencing, um, but there's other parts which are the divine pouring out of wrath that
0: we're protected from because of the blood of Christ. Are there other questions you've been getting or things you want to talk about related to tribulation?
1: Uh, no. So there's that, there's that view that regula- the tribulation could be a literal seven years, that there will be a seven years tribulation. So this is like where some of the rapture stuff comes in is there's mid, there's pre tribulational rapture, which is the dispensational view. There's the post tribulational rapture, which would be the historic premillennial view, which Luke holds. And I Maybe. used to hold until a couple of weeks ago. I don't know. And I don't <laughs> know what I hold yeah. anymore. And there's the mid tribulational view, which is just something that some professors hold that nobody else actually holds. But it's like the there's this like seven years and there's a three and a half and so my view of the way those numbers function is they're meant to function like the the trial period is a perfect amount of time. Like it's the fullness of time. So so it's not necessarily a literal amount of time. And I I know for certain people in this room disagree with me about that. And that's That's at least my understanding that there will be this escalating trial difficulty that Christians have to go through that does get harder over time as we get closer to Christ. And there's a sense in which that's tribulation. Even John at the beginning of the book of Revelation says, John, a partner with you in this tribulation. So he understood that there was a sense in which the tribulation was already happening. Like I'm with you in this tribulation. And so that's at least my view of it.
0: So I want to follow up on that little throwaway comment you just made about until a few weeks ago, uh, you viewed yourself as historic pre-mill. What happened? What are you now? Uh, Tell us about that journey. Because this is one of the things that I think is even, I think for you to be able to say that and actually be able to talk about it, I think models something interesting here to go like... I'm very humble. (laughs) uh, Exactly. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, no, I just think it's to go like, hey, we're in process. We're studying the scriptures. We're trying to be formed by the scriptures. We're not trying to shoehorn something into some predetermined whatever. So, t- t- but, but, uh, you know, tell us more.
1: Yeah. So I, I asked the elders like back in a while ago, Hey, which end times use do you have? And I kind of took a survey and compiled all the general things. And at that time I said that I was historic pre-mill with the six out of 10 confidence was my, my answer. Um, which historic premillennialism is the view that there'll be a little years in, Jerusalem and a what a, a literal thousand years in Jerusalem, okay. and so when we get to Revelation twenty, we'll we'll talk about that more in like ten days, um, and I I will always joke that my historic or millennial position was really I was at best fifty one forty nine and depended on. Uh, if I was feeling a little more negative or positive that day, uh, based on how those two positions play so, out. So I,
0: I don't want to assume everyone's listened to the episodes we've done or is familiar with this. So, yeah. so premillennial is the idea that Christ will come and then literally reign on the earth Yeah. Uh, in a specific, I mean, oftentimes it's thought of as a thousand years, though historic premill isn't always exactly a thousand years, but like there's this, this reign of Jesus on earth that will, that is to come after yes. his second coming. Yeah millennial is to say, um he is reigning now That yes. that millennium that millennium that revelation twenty talks about is we're in it now, and therefore there's it's a amillen- there's not another millennium we're we're already there, and yeah. you're saying you've had a shift from that first perspective to the second perspective
1: yeah, saying there's a shift I went from like fifty one forty nine to like forty sixty is how i <laughs> how I feel like I actually went okay like, and so part of it is. The amillennial position, which is the oldest, most broadly held position. uh, Historically. Historically, from probably like the third century uh, until the 1850s was the main position the church held, which was that Christ is presently reigning, that the thousand years is talking about he'll reign a long time. And so it's the simplest position. It teaches that Christ will return and there will be the final judgment. Bam, bam. That's the end. All things new. Um, the historic primo position separates the final judgment and the return of Christ. That there will be a return of Christ, a thousand years in Jerusalem, and then the final judgment, the great white throne that ushers in uh, the the final place. And uh, my professors in college were all historic pre- not college. They were all atheists. And in seminary, <laughs> in seminary, in seminary, we're all historic premillennial. Um, that's like the default like Reformed Baptist position. Uh, is historic premillennial. Uh, it's And the, that was
0: w- what some of John's disciples... Yeah, John were,
1: right? discipled Polycarp, who discipled Irenaeus, who is historic premillennial, which is a really strong argument for ha- holding that view. <laughs> uh, and so there's there's that view. And then a s- century later, there's a guy named Eusebius, who discipled Augustine, and Eusebius was millennial. And so a lot of it is trying to wrestle through what the text is doing and how it's functioning. And the more time I've spent in the text teaching through it and the way I see John's language functioning and what he's trying to accomplish in the hearers, it's pushed me more towards a non-millennial position. Uh, but again, I don't hold that super strongly. Like the, the books I read and the things I process through, uh, they're both very, it's, it's difficult. Like the fact that churches divide over it mostly grieves me. Um, because I, I see these various arguments. But personally, as I'm sitting in the text, I'm having a hard time not being moved towards a non-millennial position yeah. as we're teaching through at this time.
0: Well, and the thing that about both of those positions that I especially appreciate in light of everything Jesus says in the Gospels is um, that I think both of them appropriately preserve the idea that Jesus could come back at any moment. Yeah. Right? A lot of the... The more dispensational views, there's a lot of sequencing that has to take place, and well, you can't—he can't come back yet because this hasn't been established, or he can't come back yet because that has to happen first. And that isn't the sense you get from Jesus. You get the sense that it's like, "I'm coming, be ready," you know, make sure your lamp's shining, don't let it burn out. Uh,
1: yeah, there's the other view, which is postmillennialism, which uh, is a huge minority in church history. And it's this view that we're going to gradually usher in uh, the new heavens and the new earth, and and that's pretty exegetically indefensible in my view. And it's like the that view went way down after World War II, and it was the view of Jonathan Edwards and a lot of the slaveholders. And it's just not a great argument. Yeah, it's kind of just overly optimistic. Like a lot of young men
0: on the internet are post millennial. <laughs> all right um let's uh and again we can come back to more questions about rapture tribulation we can do that um let's talk about the nature of israel this is the question that i don't think any i mean i figured we'd get questions about this i've been getting much many more questions about this in the last month in light of what's been going on in uh, israel right now um so one of the questions we got was what role do you see israel playing in the program of god specifically regarding future events um you know, Another way that, that I had written a, a similar kind of question is how should we think about the modern nation of Israel? Can you compare and contrast the modern nation of Israel with biblical Israel? How does what's happening right now in Israel relate to prophecy? I realize there's a bunch of questions there, but let's just start that conversation.
1: Yeah, so my understanding of the word, so the word Israel is complicated because it takes on a developed meaning, right? So Jacob is named Israel. Israel comes to refer to an area of land. Uh, Then there's Israel as like a people group. Those people are the Israelites. They're the Israelis. Then uh, the, the first time, like you start to have this concept developed is it's the people who are the descendants of Abraham. It's Abraham's family. And so it's an ethnic group. It's a land. It's a geopolitical nation all at the same time. So you're already talking about layers of meaning, which are difficult to discern. Then what you have is the gospel writers set up Jesus as Israel. He is the remnant Israel that just as Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years and they failed the test, Christ wanders in the desert for 40 days, succeeds the test. So there's Jesus as true and greater
0: Israel. And right before that, he's sent off to Egypt. Yeah, he's sent Matthew. off to Egypt.
1: He does he follows like the, the especially Matthew the early events of Jesus' life perfectly mirror uh, the story of Israel and in, in the wilderness. And so Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. He's the true and greater Israel, the faithful Israelite. And so. Uh, and, and,
0: and maybe to elaborate there, we would just say like all of Israel failed. Yes. Except Jesus. Yeah, there's Jesus none righteous, no,
1: not run. Yeah. Until Jesus comes, he's the true and faithful and final uh, Israelite. And so then what's helpful we have to do is, okay, so how, do, how does the land relate to the people, relate to the nation? And this is where I, I tend to go to Galatians because I think Paul's the most clear what he thinks about this in Galatians. He says that when he's speaking about offspring, uh, he doesn't refer to many, but he refers to one who is Christ, is what Paul says in Galatians 3. Later on in Galatians 6, he talks about the Israel of God. And elsewhere, Paul in Romans 2 talks about how the true uh, Israelite is the one who praises Yahweh inwardly, and actually the physical uh, ethnicity counts for nothing, but it's actually the true Jew, so, so he's, this is a very offensive thing to a first century Jewish person, that Paul says a true Jew is the one who praises Yahweh inwardly, and he ends up, connecting that Yahweh, that that is Jesus. And so he's saying that these Christians are the true Jews.
0: They're the true descendants of Abraham. They're the
1: true descendants of Abraham.
0: Now, Jew and Gentile Christians are the true descendants. So it's not saying that the Gentiles have replaced the Jews. No. But that uh, we are descendants of Abraham, not by flesh and blood, but by faith.
1: Yeah. So you have, to use the language of like a tree, that there's a grafting, right? So there's a tree that is Israel, and the Gentiles are grafted into that tree. There's one tree, so there's not two trees. And that tree, um, it, at one point, was made up of one person who was the only faithful descendant of Abraham ever, who was Jesus. And so um, my understanding um, of the way that we under- should read the People of Israel, the, the descendants of Abraham, uh, is what the way Paul says it in Galatians three, and especially in Romans two, is that the true descendants of Abraham are those who have faith in Jesus, the Man of Faith. And so, if you have faith in Jesus, Jesus is the the true son of Abraham. So uh, we are Israel. So this isn't that the church replaced Israel; it's that the church and Israel are the same one people of God. Um, so that that's my understanding of how those things play
0: out so then and that's speaking of so you mentioned the layers of meaning yeah that's when you say that the church and israel are the same people of god yeah there you're not talking about a nation no you're not talking about a I'm particular talking about the geographical communi- The land. community
1: of faith in the old testament yeah. and the community of faith in the new testament um are the same people and so when we talk about what role we should think about israel in the end times when you think about the land, the, the, the strip of land, the Holy Land, Jerusalem, like Revelation 20 says that uh, here's from a historic premillennial perspective, there will be a thousand years in Jerusalem. And so the, the plot of land is incredibly significant. Uh, and even like the Jews of the Diaspora who are, you know, they they lost the Romans in 70, they lost the Romans in 135 and have been generally exiled until early 1920s, finally in 1948, most of them for 1,600 years thought the Lord will return and establish his kingdom in Jerusalem and the Messiah will do that. So they're, the Jews are rejecting the Messiah, but they still have this messianic sense of hope. And so I don't think it's necessarily the role of current political nation states. I certainly don't think it's the role of political nation states to usher in or bring about that second coming of Christ. Um, and the the political entity known as Israel, I don't think has any eschatological significance uh, whatsoever, besides for the fact that they happen to be on the plot of land that is significant in the end times.
0: Okay. So, and and one of the arguments I've heard that has made a lot of sense to me is that in the Old Testament, the inhabiting the land always required covenant faithfulness. Yes. And so now we would go, okay, Israel by and large as a nation has rejected covenant faithfulness Yeah, because they've rejected the ultimate covenant maker, Christ. And so there could be lots of good reasons why uh, Israel as a nation could be entitled to or make an argument for having that land, but it isn't theological.
1: Yeah, yeah, so partially because I'm Jewish, partially because of my geopolitical understanding of the events, is I'm generally incredibly pro-Israel as like a Western person. Uh, You know, the whole kind of Palestine thing going on lately. Like I said, I've been on Sunday. It's mostly made my blood boil, but it's not because of Bible verses in the book of Revelation. It's because of uh, the communities that I see uh, supporting human flourishing through their sense of rule and order or not. Uh, and, and the the whole argument that like Israel's a bunch, Israel's a bunch, these Jews are a bunch of uh, settlers because 1917, because 1948 it's like, well, if you're playing the, who got their first game, then it was definitely Israel just 3000 years ago. So if you kind of want to do the colonizer
0: decolonize yeah. stuff yeah that kind of plays out, who goes back the furthest. Well, there you go. So how does what's happening right now in Israel relate to prophecy and relate to revelation? I don't think it does at all. At all. I mean because on one hand, we're here we are week after week going like, "Hey, we are experiencing these four horsemen." And we are experiencing, I mean, if you're I would think that if you're in you know, Gaza or if you're in one of those places that got attacked by Hamas, you might very well think like, "Boy, that sounds like a lot of these judgments of the Book of Revelation. It's probably
1: fair to say that it's another example of antichrist behavior playing out. Um, But I don't think it's fair to say that what Hamas did to Israel is more significant than what Putin did to Ukraine. Like what you have is wars, rumors of wars, destruction, violence, people hating God, not loving their neighbor, rebelling. Like it, it all kind of plays out in similar ways. And so I just use the rush examples because that was the last thing. There's something before that, something before that, and these wars and rumors of wars are the default mode from uh, until Jesus comes back.
0: So while we're on this subject, let's let's go to like. And I realize this isn't exactly Revelation, but it plays in. What's your understanding of? You know, people often ask, "Well, does God have a future for Israel?" Yeah. And if so, what is it?
1: Yeah. So. Again, which which definition of Israel is in that question? And so I think that's... The, I, I think the,
0: when I hear people ask that, they usually mean for ethnic Jews. Ethnic Jews. Is, does God have a specific, unique, special kind of future for ethnic Jews compared to Ukrainians, compared to Germans, compared to so, Mexicans?
1: So ethnic Jews have the same advantage that they've always had, which is they have the oracles of God. That's what uh, Paul talks about. Like, they are keepers and holders an access to the oracles the writings the prophecies of the old testament so even like my family for hundreds of years has been what i'd call like reformed jews which is code for like they don't believe in anything they're like liberal jews um they kind of like keep the jewish festivals like we celebrate 4th of july it's like hey it's part of our heritage you know if there's no like Spiritual significance in it. It's their sense of a peep, being a people is mostly rooted in the fact that they were oppressed Not in the fact that they're like the benefactors or that they're the recipients of God's benevolence uh, To them, but it's still like my grandma who died an atheist Would still pray Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melcholone blessed are you O Lord maker of the universe ruler of the king ruler of the universe And so it's like can you hear the words you're saying like so there's there's an advantage in, in uh, having access to the old covenant language that, that if you read it and believed it, you'd be pointed to Christ. And so I don't think it's like a genetic uh, advantage as much as it's like a historical advantage. Like there are advantages, uh, just like being born to a two-parent household who loves and fears Jesus is an advantage. It doesn't get you anything.
0: So do you have any reason to believe that there will be a time in which, just in God's providence, many Jews come to faith. Because I think a lot of Christians sort of hope for that. Probably most Christians... Anticipate that, like, hey, you know, some point there's going to be, like, revival among ethnic Jews. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so Romans 11 talks about how all Israel will be saved, which the debate about that is pretty significant. And probably most historic Primo folks, and definitely all, or not maybe all probably all dispensational folks would say that that would either be looking to like progressive dispensation would say that there'd be a large, massive conversion of ethnic Jews like towards the culmination of uh, the tribulation uh, or at least in somewhere in that window of world history. And that's a very possible interpretation of Romans 11 is that, huge numbers of Jews will convert. Um, the, the one view that we're not open-handed about here is this view that Jews don't have to trust and repent in Jesus. Some, like, classic or old dispensational uh, taught that, that Jews are saved on the virtue of them being Jews. The Pope has made comments about like that in the last couple of years, and I think that's just totally false. Like, you have to trust in Jesus to be saved, period. doesn't matter um, where, where you come from. So there are a lot of folks who think there'll be a massive conversion. I think Romans 11 is talking about Israel and the, those people who trust in Jesus. Like, that's the the true descendants of Abraham. that will all be saved. Um, and so it's not the circumcision or the flesh that counts for something, but faith which counts. So that's my interpretation of that text. Okay. What do you think?
0: I hope there's a bunch of Jews that come to Christ. I think that'd be incredible. I mean, that's one of the things I pray for is I... Watch what's going on. I pray that, you know, I think all the time God uses suffering to uh I mean the the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Right. Suffering hardens some and softens others. And so I, I pray for that. I hope for that. Um it wouldn't shock me knowing the character of God if that happened. Yeah. But similarly, I don't feel like, well, the Lord can't return until that happens. I feel like he can return whatever he wants. And so I wouldn't want to view it as like a kind of precursor. Like, until there's evidence of, like, a big revival among ethnic Jews, Jesus can't come back. Um, but, man, I sure, I'd be awesome. I'd love it to happen.
1: You know, it's the percentage of Jews that are Orthodox still, um, it took two huge dips in the last hundred-something years. One was because of the Holocaust, because their suffering, to them, disprove God rather than, prove, than, like, awaken them. The other one was they moved back into the land in the 50s, 60s, and— realized that our hope is in the strip of land and now we have it. And where's God? Like, and so the the promise has always been rooted in a person, not just a place. And the, 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 the horizon of the promise to inherit the land was even being broadened, uh, in the old covenant that it was going you not just inherit the land, but inherit the earth that we're eventually going to reign with Christ over the whole earth. And so, uh, when you kind of take those promises too narrow and don't see how they're broadened through the Great Commission and even through the minor prophets, you know, kind of like shooting low. And so if you thought the whole hope is to get back to the land, you get back to the land and you still don't know God, you're like, yeah. Well, maybe there is no God. Yeah. And that's what happened to a lot of Jews the last couple hundred years.
0: Okay. All right. um, I think we can maybe on these next chunk move a little quicker. Hopefully still have some uh, room for some questions in the room and some other specific ones. Um, Who's the author of Revelation?
1: John. um, The question we got was some of the people say, we don't know which John. And I think that's a good question. I tend to go the simplest answer, which is the John who wrote John who wrote first, second, third John is the John who wrote Revelation. Uh, it might have been a different John, but I feel like the burden of
0: proof is on that. Yeah. My understanding is the the reason why someone might, and I think it had come up, the person that asked said, hey, in the Bible Project videos, which we recommended, they raised that question. That's um, called
1: a you did it to yourself, Seth, recommending
0: that. <laughs> it's like, No, I'd still recommend it. I, I mean, the argument is that the language of Revelation is so different from his gospel and his letters, which I'd go, yeah, and it's different from everything. You know, so uh, that doesn't worry me too much. Um, so. Yeah, there's a
1: lot of arguments that happen about biblical authorship like that. Like, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are so different. Ken Paul have written 2 Timothy. And I think, like, if I send an email to Luke for send an email to my family about Thanksgiving, I'm going to use different language, and it's going to be different. So I feel like those kind of academic arguments, for like, the language is so different. I'm like, have you ever written something you don't write the same thing twice uh, so some of those academic things drive me nuts yeah
0: all right now we have some more specific type questions and i think these uh these are going to be fun especially there's there's one we're really going to get to that's gonna be really fun all right uh, this has to do with eating in the new creation so in the new heavens and new earth what do we know about death humans won't die but will animals and plants still lay down their lives to feed us will there be a creation mandate and feasting and building uh, giving given our food and shelter come from things that once lived and died, right? We build stuff out of trees. Those were alive. We eat animals.
1: Yeah. When Jesus appears to the disciples and they're uh, eating and drinking and Jesus says, I won't eat of this again until uh, the new creation. There's at least, we know there's going to be bread and wine in the new creation. So, (laughs) um, so at least grapes will die and yeast will die. And so, uh, there's, there's some of that. I think um, the details about like there's like the line will lay down with the lamb. You know, swords and the plowshares. Uh, the details of how that'll play out are not super clear to me. I do think that even like the cycles of reproduction. If you consider plants, like there's the seed must go into the ground and die for new things to come out. And part of the creation mandate was to um, build and plant and harvest. And so all those things require a form of death. So there was a form of life cycle that I think was built in. Whether that extends to animals or not, I'm not sure. It certainly extends to plants. Uh, I think there will certainly be a creation mandate of feasting and building um, and celebrating. That's the restoration of, of the call to develop. And like we'll still be in God's image who is creative. And so we'll still be imaging him through our creativity. Uh, I would like to think that animals will die and be okay with it. So we can eat them.
0: They'll be okay with it, or we'll be okay with it, or everyone will be okay with it.
1: Uh, I actually don't really care if they're okay with it, but it would be nice if they were. Uh, so, but that's there's nothing about animal death that you can kind of uh, guess at. Yeah, I do think animals are just objectively less valuable than humans uh, on like the scope of being image of God versus just creature. Um, so it wouldn't be totally incongruent with God's ordering of the world.
0: Fun story. Uh, when I was first kind of getting introduced to Seth's ministry and before he worked here and I was like, Oh, I gotta check this guy out, I went online at the church he worked at and I watched a sermon he gave and he made a little off handed comment about how dogs don't go to heaven. <laughs> and you could hear the whole crowd groan, Ah oh. <laughs> And uh, he did not know that he, that he was unleashing that level of uh <laughs> I, thought animosity. I, was just, I, thought I was just
1: saying the sky was blue, you know and that <laughs> People are surprised by it.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I look and go like, I mean, because I know like if Mark Andrews were here, he'd go, oh, I hope there's bacon in heaven, you know? And I'd go, I hope there is too. But if there's not, I trust there'll be something better. Yeah. I know that I won't be disappointed, whatever there is or isn't. That's the main thing I know. Sure. All right. uh, This is an interesting question. How ought we to think about gods in our underdeveloped west? gods, lowercase g, plural, gods? In our underdeveloped Western views on spiritual things, what about angels, demons?
1: Yeah, so to get super nerdy here for a second, uh, a lot of people think of Christianity as being monotheistic. um, But like the more technical like term would be that it's henotheistic, which is there's one God worthy of worship. uh, and so, because the word, lowercase g, gods, is all over the place in the Old Testament. And if you kind of hold to like a strict, there's only one God view of things, you actually kind of get spooked by all this like angels, demons, gods, the Baal. You know, is Baal just like, everyone has a, a mental issue? Is ba- Baal's like a real God? that is conquered by Yahweh. And so there's only one God worthy of worship would be like the henotheistic understanding of things. And so I do think that, especially the more Western industrialized, educated and wealthy we are, the more we think uh, naturalistically on accident, like that's kind of part of the trajectory is everything has a materialistic explanation. Uh, Everything, like the idea that like someone might be demon possessed is like, wait a minute, I don't think so. But like you read the Bible, and it's like, yep, it's all over the place there. And so uh, there's two ways of being uh, uh, historically liberal, when, you, and I mean that word negatively in this context. Uh, it's called demythologizing, which is uh, the old seminaries would read the miracles of Jesus and explain them using naturalistic causes. Jesus didn't really die. He swooned and then came back to life. Uh, Jesus didn't really walk on water. The water, it was just... The water was really thin, and it looked like he was walking on water because it was really shallow that day because of droughts, you know. They didn't really cross the Red Sea uh, because there wasn't really a flood. It was just a, a regional, and so that's that's like the part of the reason why a lot of the dispensational seminaries were started is that like the mainline liberal denominations were in their seminaries demythologizing the text, say these miracles are not there. Uh, conservatives now kind of do the same stuff like angels and demons. We're just like, no, that's not demons. No, that's not angels. No, it's not. But just this reality that like we live in a supercharged, highly spiritual world, and there's angels and demons affecting and moving and challenging and shaping us all the time is just cl- like what the Bible talks about. And those demons manifest in a variety of ways, sometimes directly attacking individuals, sometimes in... Uh, leading whole cultures astray, uh, like a worldview demon, you could call it. Like, uh, you know, like a a My Body, My Choice demon would be a demon, you know. Uh, is like like something that takes root and uh, causes the mind to submit to an anti-gospel picture of the world. And so uh, the demons have a lot of plays they can run, and I think we need a broad understanding of how that plays out.
0: So we're not saying there are other gods that are as powerful as God, and it just happens that Yahweh is the yeah, one yeah. worthy of worship. We're saying no, no, no. Like yeah, all these lowercase g gods are manifestations of demonic power. Yeah,
1: they're created beings. Yeah. Um, but they're spiritual, non-corporeal uh, identities. So uh, God... In English, por favor? Yeah, so they don't have bodies, non-corporeal. So non-bodied. Is, yeah. the, is the term, angels, demons. Um, and so I would understand angels and demons, biblically speaking, they are gods, lowercase g, gods. Um, and there are the obedient gods, angels, and the disobedient gods, demons. So Baal, it's best to understand Baal as a demon, um, but you could also refer to him as a lowercase g, god. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Practically speaking, you know, um, we drive past the Mormon temple and there's the, what the Mormons call the angel Moroni on top of it, right? I That's demon Moroni, you know? That's the the, 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 the deceiver, a deceptive spiritual force that's captivating and oppressing millions of people. Um, you could swap out the demon Mor- like the demon Moroni for uh, the demon uh, Darwin who says nothing, you know, et cetera, so.
0: Okay. All right, so let's get into just more specific ones. And this one... Just to really just lighten the mood. Uh, oh, baby. Let's, uh, hello? Is it, okay. Yeah, let's go with this one. Um, this person says, I feel ridiculous asking this, but now's my shot. So Revelation 9 and 16, by the way, there's no stupid questions, okay? Revelation 9 and 16 reference unclean spirits that, quote, look like frogs, ascending from under the dried-up Euphrates, which will, wi- which will wipe out one-third of mankind. Do you think this is a reference to the aliens that the government says we have proof of? right? If you follow the news, there's increasing you know, stuff about that. That's interesting. Do you think that this is setting the stage for a great deception? The idea that the government could explain away the rapture or Christians disappearing with an alien abduction has been talked about. What are your thoughts? Um, so... I th- so
1: there's a, an assumption in there. Um, the government could explain away the rapture disappearing by an alien abduction. So I'd, I just, on the front end, don't agree that there's a rapture like that. Um, so I just want to say that. Number two, do I think the government could explain away something for their own selfish gain? Uh, yeah. Uh, probably, no. probably. Yeah. No. As they, a general you category. Can always trust them. Yeah, as a general category. Uh, they'll do what they can to preserve and protect uh, power. Um, The idea of a great deception, I think, comes from uh, 1 Timothy 2. Not 1 Timothy 2. Uh, I forget where it is. But this idea that there's going to be all these false prophets. And we see that a couple of times in Revelation, a couple of times in Paul's letters, a couple of times in the New Testament. I mean, in the Gospels, where there's just going to be widespread deception uh, it's going to be in your text this week. These, mm-hmm. these kings that sp- speak falsely, we saw it in my text last week, uh, which is where the actual frogs were, um, that they're just false teachers deceiving people all the time. I think it's kind of wild if you just think about like the general content of preaching that most people get in most churches, most places. Uh, I mean, just I don't I haven't been to a lot of these churches, but like you see them on the internet, and you're like, oh my goodness gracious, people are saying. Is what the Bible says. So, and even you think about like whole mainline denominations of people who think they're going to church to hear the word taught, and instead they're hearing, hearing kind of like this uh, pro LGBTQ kumbaya, all pass lead to God message. So, on the one hand, I think this idea of great deception is playing out all the time, uh, not just and that, that's people who think they're going to church to hear God's word. Not necessarily people who are like, man, eh, church, I'll go to brunch. Like, those people are deceived differently. But I think people who, like, want, like, there's, and their ears are being tickled. And they go, oh, that sounds good. You know, I I, I hear pe- people here, I, I go to church. And this happens to me at the gym sometimes. Oh, you go to church? Like, oh, can you recommend a church that's, like, gay affirming? You know, it's like, I can't. You know, so I don't. So, but people, like, have pre-decided their filters and then they'll go and hear what they want to hear. That's called acquiring to themselves teaching that search of the ears. So I think the great deception is happening all the time.
0: Well, and to that point, I mean, this is some of what I'm going to be preaching on Sunday in Revelation 17 and 18. But the great deception, I think, is already underway in that it's that salvation is found through stuff and money and wealth. I mean, that's what's the great collapse of Babylon in Revelation 18 is this long list of cargo that comes just straight out of a shipping list, you know? Um, And so I think, like, like we're really on guard against the great deception of the government, and we should be. We're not as on guard against the great deception of Black Friday. And we should be much more on guard about that because that's actually probably more likely to seduce more of us. And it, it's kind of like the mark of the beast thing I was talking about Of like if it if it was you you'd catch it if it was a thing on your ID. but if it's just where your heart gives allegiance to, you could miss it. So.
1: Yeah, really practically I think the frogs um, are not the reference to aliens, but I think John's hitting the theme of like the frogs from the book of Exodus at the plagues and kind of the grossness and uh, the infiltration and it's highlighting,
0: the, the thematic move of God's judgment. Um, okay, do you think there are aliens, and if so, would it affect any of your reading of this? Uh, What's the church's position? Church's position on, on aliens? aliens, Seth.
1: I probably think the simplest explanation for like aliens and stuff is it's. Uh, I put it in the same category as like bail. Like there are fallen gods, fallen angels, demons that are acting out in certain ways to try to distract or deflect or uh deceive scare, deceive more yeah. D words. Deceive, yeah, denigrate, divulge. Yeah. They're uh, so they're 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 trying to like uh inhibit God's mission on earth and create sideways energy that aren't isn't in line with uh, god's purposes and so uh just like it, when i hear someone talking about like when the bible forbids necromancy or inquiring of the dead uh like I, i've had people a lot of people come to me and say like i've been having dreams of my dead grandmother and she's speaking to me and i said the the simplest explanation for this is that's just a dream the the next explanation of this is like demons are real and they're trying to freak you out so I, it's not your grandma. That's a demon. You know what I mean. So, don't listen to it. And and so, uh, I would say some similar things with aliens. Are there? Could there be just extraterrestrial organic life? Sure. Does it affect any of this
0: stuff? I don't really think so. All right. Um, so there's a couple like real specific questions about different uh, different passages. So, like, do the four living creatures in Revelation 4-7 represent something is one. Um, You, I, you I'll, taught that one. Yeah, I'll tackle that since I tackled that one. Another one was, how long was the period of time from the beginning to the end of the seven trumpets? Has the seventh trumpet happened yet? So, on that first one, I, I don't know why I did two questions. I should have just done one at a time. Do the four living creatures in Revelation 4-7 represent something? So, Revelation 4-7 says... it's talking about the, um, the throne in heaven and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Um, yeah, there's different, um, I mean, there's different ways that people kind of think about that. Again, these, these living creatures are around the throne. They're giving worship to God. Um, they're never ceasing to say, it says in verse eight, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it could represent real specific things like ox represents strength and man represents something else. I mean, um, the, the way that I, um, best understood this as I studied it was that, um, all the nations represent themselves through these creature kinds of images And that this is a way of saying even the strong nations that represent themselves as an eagle or as a bear or as an ox or as a whatever, um, in the end, they give allegiance to Jesus. So um, that it was more a statement about um, all empires will eventually fall down before Christ rather than it was that the particular creatures uh, represented specific things. But I'm sure you could find other alternative interpretations.
1: Time between the sixth and seventh trumpet. Yeah, the question. And so, (laughs) my understanding, uh, which I'm uh, moderately convinced of, is that the first six trumpets highlight an ongoing uh, pouring out of God's judgment through His uh, wrath poured out on various parts of the earth. Um, The seventh trumpet represents something that's not yet happened yet. Uh, And uh, the reason I think about that is because there's these woes. The eagles fly over, say, woe to those who dwell in the earth. Third woe, first woe comes, second woe comes in Revelation eleven, fourteen says the second woe is past, behold, the third woe is soon to come. And the third woe doesn't happen in the book of Revelation, which I think we're meant to see ourselves as in between the second and third woe. And that seventh trumpet also happens in a way where there's the sixth and then the address to the people, and then there's the seventh trumpet after the witnesses. So I see the seventh trumpet as being the final the finalizing of the judgment. So, time spent in between uh, thousands of years. So I think the seventh trumpet could blow any minute now. I think the seventh trumpet would be referencing the trumpet of First Thessalonians four, the trumpet of the Olivet discourse, the, the return of Christ. That's judgment. It's like the it's the it's
0: too late trumpet. Hmm. That would be the seventh trumpet. Uh, another specific question we got was uh, does Jesus put an angel over every church like the five churches or I think it's the seven churches in Revelation. Um and uh, that is one interpretation. So there's a spot in Revelation 1 well, Revelation 2 and 3 um where it keeps saying to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in that word angel is uh is the is a word that just means messenger. Um you know, it's uh often Luke is our angel. Yeah, I mean there is a there is a way of interpreting it that is saying, hey, he's actually writing these letters to the pastors, to the messengers of each church. That's
1: the reformation um, view that's like
0: the most of the reformers held that view. Yeah, and and one of the reasons that that's I think a decent interpretation is that um in almost all the cases where it says I know your works, your toil, your patience, it's it's singular. Right? Uh most of the time when you read your like, I know your works in the Bible. It's like, I know y'all's. It's plural. These are actually almost always singular. I know your tribulation. I know your endurance. I know, you, like, speaking to an individual. So, um, obviously, there aren't angels who are enduring or who are sinning. Or So, I think there's a legitimate uh, understanding to that, Um I wouldn't die on that hill, but I thought that was an interesting thing I came across in the study. It didn't seem uh, important enough for me to include it in the sermon, but I thought it was interesting. Um, and does Jesus put an angel over every church today like those churches? Um, well, in, if it depends. If an angel is an angel like a spiritual being, then... You go, well, I don't know. It doesn't necessarily say. It just says that if, if that's what it is, then these were angels to these seven churches, and perhaps there's an angel of the, to the church of Gateway who's going to have to get a new T-shirt. <laughs> um, uh, and if it's, you know, angel means like messenger or pastor, then yeah, certainly uh, almost every church has leadership. So, All right, so uh, Anybody. again, speak up, yeah, and then um, we'll repeat your question. Okay, so the question is, how has Revelation impacted us personally, what will we come back to? What will we take away from it? You know, what's been the impact of it? Um, I'll say first, I think uh, I've been just blown away by the glory of God and the the just beauty of Christ. Um, It's also been interesting, just the way the preaching schedule has kind of worked out. I was saying this to Seth today. I keep getting all these fork in the road, this way or that way, sections and he keeps getting all these judgment sections you know um like I I was actually like working on my message today for the Sunday and I was going like I it's like to this it's like to this it's like to this and I'm like that's what I talked about last time right because it keeps being this it's this way or that way and I think the contrast um I think that's maybe one of the bigger things I have taken away is like I imagined we'd be walking into this fog of revelation that you couldn't make sense of and it actually, though there's plenty of that for me as we go through it. It's mostly the contrast is really stark. You can go the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb. You can go the way of Babylon, the prostitute, or the way of uh, Jerusalem, the bride. You know, you can, and just, it's this or it's this. You can fold or you can conquer. You can cave or you can endure you know, and so I think that contrast has been really just beautifully like stark. Of like, I think um, in a world that is complicated, and we can make it too complicated, it's been great to go. It's not that complicated. Follow Jesus. So that's for me.
1: Yeah, I think the probably the biggest personal one is like my zeal for personal evangelism. I find going way up, and partly that's because in the midst of all this just wild demonstration of God's power. There's just opportunity after opportunity presented. Like this morning, I was reading out of Revelation 18 as we're kind of moving forward, when it's like Babylon is the greatest fallen, a dwelling place. It's just destroyed. And says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Like there's this invitation to come out of Babylon quickly. It's tumbling. Like, come out. Don't, be, don't get wrapped up in her sins. Don't share in her plagues. Uh, it's like, come out. And there's like this, this endearing mercy of God that's happening at the same time of like this raw show of power. And the, the power makes you want to worship. Like that's impressive. And this mercy makes you want to invite, like come out. So, so I think Romans eighteen four this morning for me, I was like, this is the main verse I think I'm going to come back to. It's like, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her plagues. Is that, that invitation has really struck me. Uh so it's like as far as like impact. I think as far as like my own conviction, like I think uh, going back to the other question about the gods and the spirits, like I think my own secularism, naturalism, I feel regularly convicted by like there's way more going on that meets the eye. Like and I think Revelation's that like black light that shows you all the scorpions, you know, and and I think that Revelation's showing me there's like way more going on than I can see. And so I'm feeling personally convicted at how scientific, secular Western my worldview is functionally uh, in terms of how I interpret situations in my own life
0: I was really moved this past Sunday just listening to Seth's the end of Seth's sermon where he, he'd been talking about all the different uh, plagues and just the, the way that the Lord Jesus like took it like it's not he took God's wrath in general but he he drank the bowls one at a time in his crucifixion like that's moved me and blessed me. And so it's been, it's been really rich in terms of the just devotion and things. Okay. So the question is uh, in the beginning, when you said you don't believe in a rapture, do you, does that mean you don't believe in any kind pre post or mid no rapture at all?
1: Yeah, my understanding of how the end times will unfold right now is that Jesus will come back and will take away all the unrepentant into judgment and he'll make all things new and establish the new heavens and new earth forever. So there, the in that making all things new, there will be the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the restoration of those who are alive in Christ. But there won't be a rapturing away of God's people to somewhere else. So
0: simplest answer is no. So uh, the question is, there's not a reference of the church from about the end of chapter three till you get toward the end of the book. Um, And uh, is there really then a sense that like that whole section, the church and the world are, you know, the people of God and the earth dwellers are both experiencing these same judgments and these same things. And why would God let that happen?
1: Okay. Yeah. To keep it brief, I think Christ promises suffering for his people. That's not a new, uh, category. I think the bride coming down are those who, the saints who have died with Christ and are in Christ and many of whom are martyred and uh, slaughtered for their faith and so I don't think we're recipients of God's wrath except for in the indirect sense. Like I said earlier about inflation and those types of things. I think we're mostly, I think Revelation paints those who are marked, who are sealed um, in the blood of the Lamb, those who are sealed. Like all the seven terms we just talked about, it's Only those who are marked in the mark of the beast who are experiencing the outpouring of those things. But the church is still present bearing witness somehow. And so there's an indirect uh, but not personal subjugation to that. So we're not going to be recipients of the direct wrath of God because that's poured out on Christ. But I don't think there's necessarily um, uh, a promise of protection from suffering or pain about going about existing in the brokenness of the world. Uh, Christians everywhere still right now experience all types of hor- horrendous, horrendous, not horrendous, heinous, horrendous things. And uh, I don't know how, why would that would be different towards the end if it's something that people currently experience right now.
0: So, And I think there's also a sense of like the first century recipients of this, so much of what's going on in chapters 4 through 18 is referencing Rome. So they were actually living in it then. Right, so there's a sense in which if they were then in those chapters, and Christ hasn't returned, then we're still in those chapters as well, um, and we're you know in a sense living those moments, right? In in the safety and security of Queen Creek, a lot of those things feel like they're still to come. In many parts of the world, they would go, "What do you mean they're still to come?" That's like our reality right now. Is what it feels like we're experiencing tribulation right now. So, it you know it is depends on where you are in the world. But I think that's how the, I think that's how the original readers would have read the whole book is to say they're having to be faithful through all of it. Um, and I, I think that's a faithful way to read it. The question is Seth, what in the world, uh, that I'm adding that, uh, Seth, uh, are you saying we're in the millennium right now?
1: Yeah. So I'll read the text. Um, and then I'll answer the question. Um, so it says, then I saw an angel
0: coming down. Oops, from hold on real fast. What text?
1: Revelation 20. Sorry. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into that pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he might be released for a little while. So my position right now would be the amillennial position which is that at the death of Christ, the serpent was bound and such that the gospel could not be hindered from going out to the nations. And at the end of time, right before Christ comes back, he'll be released and there will be this escalating deception that happens. And so that thousand years of being bound, that we reign with Christ in the heavenly places, like the book of Hebrews talks about, that, that's the millennial position. And right now I'm 60% there. Yeah, so that view, especially like what does it mean that the dragon was bound? Like the way that Augustine talks about that when he was flushing this out in his book, The City of God, is that the dragon was first and foremost bound at the resurrection of Christ because death was conquered. The final thing was overthrown. Um, that doesn't mean that people can't still be deceived, but they they're not ultimately deceived. Just like the so the missional focus in Israel was that the nations would flow to Jerusalem but that changes directions at the resurrection and the pouring out of the spirit is that now the, the church goes out to the nations and the gates of hell don't prevail against the nations. And so Augustine interpreted that as saying there's an initial binding in that the great deception at the end of the age, where there'll be a greater deception, he'll be let out and deceived like the book of Revelation has talked about. Um, so that's that's the homiletical interpretation of that text. And Luke is pre male, so we probably disagree about that. He doesn't like that interpretation very much.
0: Yeah, so the question is about the doctrine of election as it relates to this. And throughout Revelation, we've been seeing that um, all the different judgments, you know, are these chances that God's giving people to repent, but they don't. And is that have to, how does that have to do with election?
1: Yeah, I think the human condition stays the same. And the idea that there's a general call that goes out to all people and the Holy Spirit miraculously gives some people new hearts is, is still in view there. Um, and so how exactly that fits into the task of evangelism to me is always a confounding mystery that's deeply frustrating. And I think it'll remain frustrating in the
0: end of time. So she had uh, been reading some commentaries from a more Reformed tradition that were referencing books from the Apocrypha. I was curious, can you use, You know, how should we understand Apocryphal, writings as we relate to it i think the value of it um and that's very common in commentaries and what they're often trying to do is to go how would the first century readers have understood this those usually are not arguing that the apocrypha is the word of god but that they were books that were known by people at that time using imagery that people would have been familiar with Um, so it would be a little bit like how we might in a sermon appeal to a pop culture song you know, that everyone's familiar with in order to make a point uh, doesn't mean we think that that's scripture. So I think that would be typically how, uh, especially from a Reformed tradition, maybe from more of a Roman Catholic tradition, it might be understood differently.
1: Yeah, yeah. Paul in the book of Acts quotes um, literature that's not biblical. Uh, Jude quotes from Enoch. Uh, so, so I think the biblical authors are okay with, like, using non-biblical source texts as illustrative or demonstrative but not authoritative so I think they can help us get in the mind of what first century people were thinking uh, but I don't think they should be used as like authoritative uh, texts by any definition yeah
0: so the question is if we're in an amillennial <laughs> understanding where we're uh, there is no you know future earthly millennium what do we do with passages like Ezekiel 40? through 46, I think you said, that talk about temple and things like that.
1: So premillennials will go to those texts and say, this is proof we're not in the millennium. Um, The way that the Amalekites answer to that is to look at a theology or a biblical theology of what the temple is, that creation was established to be a temple um, with the priest of Adam set up. And a lot of the creation narrative really mirrors the Leviticus temple narrative. And even the task assigned to serve and keep to Adam is the task assigned to the priests of the, the temple. And so the temple was creation, and then because of sin, the, the heaven and earth are separated. And so then God creates the earthly temple, where you have heaven and earth meet in the Holy of Holies. Um, and so right now we're in this already-not-yet situation where the temple is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit and all of us, that we are the temple, that first Peter talks about you all, are the living stones, you know, the the, the 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 you are the temple of God. So the answer would be that that's referring to the church that's in a partial fulfillment that will ultimately be fully fulfilled when the whole new creation is established and the whole earth, again, is the Lord's temple. So that's the arc of, like, temple theology in the millennial framework.
0: Maybe you'll just get here in a couple of weeks, Seth, but I'm curious as it relate. I mean, the thing that always gives me the... I feel like I read all of Revelation and I and I want to be a millennial. Yeah, Where I get stuck is in Revelation 20. Uh, he sees that dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. That would seem to suggest that if a is true, that Satan is currently bound, shut, not deceiving the nations that's the one spot that makes me go oh I have a hard time with that so with all of your 60 percent confidence uh, or maybe you just tell me hey you know keep your powder dry and we'll get there in a couple weeks but
1: yeah the the historic interpretation of that is that the resurrection bound Satan and so the unable to dis- to deceive the nations any longer is similar to what Jesus talked about how they might might build the re- church on this rock the gospel and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so it's not that no deception happens at all but it's no ultimate deception can thwart the mission
0: of the church by the power of the spirit so for those who reject christ and end up in hell do they regret it do they wish they'd made a different decision what are they what are they thinking
1: there's a, a text where jesus is giving a parable and there's the man who's in abraham's bosom and he says, "Hey, go tell them to repent, because I'm, like, I made I've made a mistake, right?" And uh, I think that's mostly a parable. I think Jesus highlighting uh, there will be a sense of regret or a sense of shame uh, that's possibly there. There's also this theme throughout Revelation that as people are receiving God's wrath, they're still just cursing God, and they still want nothing to do with Him, and so they they might be regretting the fact that God is the way that he is they may be regretting the fact that things are uncomfortable now. Um, but there's still like a hatred for God that will make them not want to be in heaven because heaven is with God. And so I think it'll be a very emotionally complicated, like, yeah, I don't want to be up there anyway. It's like when you don't get invited to the party, you're like, well, I do not want to be invited anyway. You know, like, like that kind of like self-justifying sense of regret, but also a sense of missing out, um, uh, that's fairly speculative, but I think I think you see some of both of that in those texts.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, even in that parable, and, and I think it is right to read it as a parable, the rich man in, in that rich man is Lazarus' story. It's not that he really wants God, it's that he doesn't want the anguish anymore. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish, right? Which is very different than saying, I want God. Saying, like, I just don't want this bad anymore. So, I think that's a another consideration listen thank you guys you all have been very patient you've listened a lot uh i assume you might still have questions so we'll hang around for a little bit um and again if you need to talk more especially if anything kind of really did ruffle you and you're like man i'd like to follow up on that we really would want to do that so that that isn't an inconvenience or a problem we would hope to have the opportunity to to do that if, if that would help you so let me pray for us god thank you uh so much for your word And thank you that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord of all. Um, Lord, I thank you for the promises of Scripture. I thank you even for uh, the promise that we're going to look at this week. uh, That uh, the enemy makes war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Lord, that's who we want to be. We want to be called and chosen and faithful. We want to worship and adore you. And I pray that you'd give us humility and insight as we continue to pursue uh, knowing you and trusting you and loving you and uh, interpreting your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.